Matthew chapter 15. And so in our youth Sunday school class on Sunday mornings, we've been working our way through this account of the gospel. And um, we kind of walked through it. We've seen, we've sought to, to understand and to be encouraged by, to be challenged by all of these rich truths that this book teaches us about Jesus. All that it teaches us about who he is, about his, his ministry and his teaching. And so we're going to kind of pick up there this morning um, at the end of chapter 15. And as we come to the end of chapter 15, I, I think it's, it's going to be helpful for us to um, step back a little bit and, and understand kind of the broader view of what's going on um, in, in this account that, that Matthew has recorded for us. So uh, if we step back, we can kind of understand chapters 13 through 16 a, as a unit, kind of unit. There, there's some unique things that happen in these chapters. Um, one thing is, uh, starting in chapter 13, Jesus begins to teach the crowds in parables. He teaches in parables. And this is done both to reveal the truth to those who believe, but also to conceal the truth from those who do not. And, and so throughout chapter 13, Jesus um, tells parables that, that refers to those who, who truly are believers and those who are not. So in the parable of the soils, we see four different types of soils in, into which the farmer sows seed, but only one of them produces fruit. The parable of the wheat and the tares, in which the wheat is harvested and is stored in the barn, and the tares are cut down and thrown into the fire. And later on in 13, the parable of the dragnet, we see that all kinds of of fish are caught in the net, and then they're, they're sorted out. And the good fish are put into containers and kept, and the bad fish are thrown away. And so Jesus teaches us throughout this that, this will be the response of human beings to the good news of the gospel and to Jesus. Some will believe and they will bear fruit, but many will not. And they'll be cut down and thrown away or thrown into the fire. And after these parables of Jesus in chapter 13, Matthew continues from, from the end of that chapter, from the end of chapter 13 through chapter 16 to illustrate this truth for us. Um, we see accounts of, of individuals and groups who respond to Jesus, respond to the truth, some with faith and belief, but many with unbelief and with hardened hearts. So, for example, we see um, Jesus' own hometown. He goes to his hometown of Nazareth and he's rejected. They reject him and they're offended by him. We also see at the beginning of 14 this kind of bizarre explanation of who Jesus is by, by Herod Antipas. that He claims that, that Jesus is John the Baptist back from the dead. We also see in chapter 14 that the crowds followed Jesus wherever he went. And of course then there's always the question of, of were they following him 
just because of the works that he did and, and what he could do for them, or did they truly believe him? Did they, they believe him to be the Savior? And, and no doubt there was a mixture of both in these crowds. Um, at the end of chapter 14, we, we finally see this proper response to Jesus from the disciples. So after Jesus had come to them walking on the water, he'd gotten in the boat with them, they worshipped him. The people of uh, Gennesaret heard of Jesus and brought their sick out to him. And at the beginning of chapter 15, we see the Pharisees come and they question Jesus. And they accuse his disciples of breaking their religious laws. And then last Sunday, we got to chapter 15 and we looked at this account of of Jesus with this Canaanite woman in, in, verses, in chapter 15, verses 21 to, to 28. And, um, and the setting of this account is important because it, it carries over into um, our verses we're going to look at this morning. Um, so all of this is kind of setting, setting us up to, to get there. And we see that in verse 21 of chapter 15 that Jesus went away from the area of Galilee, where he had been ministering. And he went to the region of, of Tyre and Sidon. So you can see on the, the map the, uh, the Sea of Galilee, and then up in the, the top left corner is Tyre. And so he, he made a trip there. And the fact that Jesus would go out to that place is significant because this was Gentile territory. As a matter of fact, Mark, in his, in, in his account of this, explicitly tells us. Now, this woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. Now, this is, this is uncharacteristic of Jesus' ministry. Um, Jesus' ministry was to be among the, the Jewish people. John 1 tells us he came to his own, and his own people, meaning the Jews, did not receive him. Paul writes in Romans 15 that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, to the Jewish people, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarch. So Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the promise to the people of Israel made by God, to to Abraham and to Isaac and, and to Jacob, all the way back in the book of Genesis. Peter, preaching to the Israelites in Acts 3, he says, You are the sons of the prophets and of the the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Paul writes again in in Romans in chapter 1, we read, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. So this is a, what we're reading about here in chapter 15 is, is a very specific time in salvation history in which Jesus came to the Jewish people. And 
And we, I think we have a hard time kind of thinking this way because we live on this side of the cross. We live in a time after Acts chapter 10 where, if you remember, Peter had this vision of unclean animals and, and the Lord Jesus told him, get up, kill, and eat. And after this, Peter said, truly I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. And, and later we read when Peter is telling the Jews in Jerusalem about uh, the Gentiles who have been saved. It says that when they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Paul describes this in, in Ephesians 2, where he writes this. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who, were once, who, who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And so praise God that, that the Gentiles have been, been grafted in. We've become a part of the family of God in Christ. But in Matthew 15, in these verses, we're, we're not there yet. We're in, in salvation history. It's coming in the future. But we're not there, so we see here Jesus came first to the Jewish people. So, for example, in chapter 15, verse 24, Jesus directly says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Earlier in the book of Matthew, in chapter 10, uh, Jesus commissions the, the twelve, and, and he sends them out on you know, basically what is, in effect, their their first short-term mission trip. And, and when he sends them out, he tells them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So the Jewish people, the people of Israel, a people chosen by God in his sovereign choice that they would be his people and he would be their God. And so that's what we see in chapter 15. But we also see in the scriptures how the Jewish people responded to Jesus when he came to them. And in general, they rejected him. We, um, Jesus can, uh, you know, the, the scribes and, and the Pharisees, they accused him of blasphemy. They, they sought to kill him. Um, Jesus condemns these Jewish territories where he had, he had done so many miracles. Done so many miracles. And yet, even after seeing all that he had done, the Jewish people in those areas did not repent and they did not believe. As a matter of fact, Jesus says in chapter 11, he says, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. And then we get here to Matthew 15, and where's this Canaanite woman from? The region 
of Tyre and Sidon. And we're faced with something in this account that we, we just don't expect. And, and we see here the, the humility and, and the faith of a woman that's coming from a, a ceremonially unclean, pagan, Gentile people. And yet Jesus declares that her faith is great. And he heals her daughter. And all of that kind of gets us this morning to verse 29 of chapter 15. Look there with me. And Matthew writes that Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. Mark tells us, more specifically in his account, that that he went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of Decapolis. That's important because the Decapolis was a collection of ten small cities still in Gentile area. So he's still among the Gentiles. So there he is among these Gentile people. And then we see in verses 30 and 31. We read, and great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet, and he healed them. So that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. And they glorified the God of Israel. And so again, these ceremonially unclean pagan people groups. They, they hear of Jesus and they bring their sick to him and they, they put them at his feet. And all of these physical ailments that, that they had, that they had been experiencing, you know, some of them no doubt their whole lives. They had had these issues and Jesus healed them. And I was reminded in reading and and thinking through this, what, just what that scene must have looked like. You know, just this mass of humanity all rushing just to get to Jesus to be healed. I mean, I thought about, you know, we've, we've all seen footage of stores on Black, Fi- Black Friday, right? Of people rushing in just to get a good deal on TV. Imagine what it was like when folks that were blind for years start coming away seeing. And they're rushing to get to him. Several authors point to the use of the word crippled in verse 30. The the King James and the New King James use the word maimed. And the authors point out that this, this is the same word that's used elsewhere in Scripture to describe someone who has a severed limb. I mean, think about that. Would that not be absolutely amazing? And I was just imagining in my mind this, seeing this, this poor, pitiful beggar that you've walked past every day for years. And you see him go hopping to Jesus on his one leg, and he comes running back on two. Because Jesus has given him his leg back. I mean, how incredible would that be that, that Jesus would literally create and restore limbs where they were missing? And in verse 31, it says that the Gentile crowd saw the works 
that Jesus had done, and they wondered. Some translations say marveled. Some translations say that they were amazed. And you can imagine how seeing these things would do just that, to be awestruck at the sight of of those whom you knew to be deaf and mute and crippled, and they come back healed and made whole. And their lives are completely changed by being placed at the feet of Jesus and being healed by him. In the last sentence of verse 31, we read, And they glorified the God of Israel. They worshipped God. They, They praised him. And it specifies here the God of Israel. Why? Because they were, these were Gentiles, right? It's not, it was not their lowercase g God that they worshipped. It was not their, their idol. It wasn't their pagan deity that had done this thing. The one who had the power to restore all of these to health is the one true God of Israel. And so there, there are several truths that we, we see in these few verses this morning and we're going to look at those together. One thing that we see in this is a biblical pattern. This biblical pattern for how we are to respond to the works of the Lord. So we see here that first of all they saw his works. The, this crowd with their eyes saw the works of the God of Israel. As a matter of fact This crowd saw with their eyes. Some others in the crowd see with their eyes for the first time in their lives. They saw others who could not uh, use their mouths to speak or to communicate who who were now doing so. Just this incredible thing to experience the miracles here that Jesus had performed. And after seeing his works, they wondered in amazement. They were astonished, almost in disbelief of what they had witnessed. Right? There's no human explanation for the things that they had seen. They, they had seen things that defied what they knew about the human body. Right? Human beings don't just spontaneously regrow limbs. We know that there are certain parts of the body that when they're injured, they don't naturally heal or, or regenerate themselves. And yet, this crowd had, see thing, had seen these things take place after these people had been taken to Jesus. And upon seeing his works and wandering in amazement, we see then that they worshipped the God of Israel. And that's the whole purpose. It's the whole goal to glorify, to praise, to extol the one true God. And, you know, these miracles greatly enhanced the quality of life. It restored those who were healed. And Jesus did this for them because of his his great love and and mercy that he had for for them. But the ultimate goal was not merely the restoration or or merely the happiness of the person receiving the miracle. The ultimate goal and result of these miracles was the glory of God. The exaltation and the praise of the one who had worked the miracles. And and that's the goal of, of 
all miracles that God chooses to perform even today. One example of this that that came to mind um, as I was studying and and thinking through this um, of how this plays out in our lives today would be um, let's just say let's say a couple okay that that struggle with infertility for about fifteen years or so find out that they're going to have a child. Miraculously, supernaturally. And they go to the doctor and they, they, they see the ultrasound on the screen and they, they see the, the little heartbeat and they see those two legs just kicking inside of there. and They see the work of God that He has performed and they, they stare at the screen in wonder and amazement knowing that this child is not just a mere natural occurrence. And this leads to the glorifying of the God of Israel. Of praising His name. Of of thanksgiving just wailing up inside of them and bursting forth in praise. Works, wonder, worship. It's the biblical pattern that we see here. A second truth that we see from these verses is not only a biblical pattern, but also a blatant contrast. So we've just discussed the the reaction of the Gentile crowd to the miracles and works of Jesus being brought brought forth in in amazement and leading them to, to glorify the God of Israel. But also, after reading through 15 chapters of Matthew, we can compare this reaction to the reaction of the Jewish people. And particularly to the reaction of the scribes and the Pharisees when they see the works of Jesus. So in chapter 9, for example, Jesus sees the faith of a, a paralytic's friends who have lowered this man down through the roof to be healed by Jesus. And, and Jesus sees them and he says, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven and then we read it says and behold some of the scribes said to themselves this man is blaspheming so the scribes see the works of Jesus and they charge him with blasphemy in chapter 12 Jesus heals a man with a withered hand it says on the Sabbath and then we read But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. A man with a withered hand who who couldn't use it has been restored. Is, Is that not a cause for rejoicing and praise? And yet the Pharisees walk away from this account talking about a way that they can kill him. Later in chapter 12, Jesus heals a demon oppressed man who was blind and mute. And it says that when he did, and the Pharisees heard of it, they said it's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. And so, again, this act which should have brought forth amazement and wonder and rejoicing and praise to the God of Israel 
only brings an accusation from the Pharisees that, that Jesus was actually working with Satan to cast out this demon. Very different reaction to the works of Jesus that we see from the Gentile crowd here in verse 15. And that's not really what we would expect to see. We, I mean, you've got the Pharisees and the scribes. They're the most well-educated. They're the most biblically literate people of the day. They've got great parts of the Old Testament. They are committed to memory. They're part of the people of Israel to whom belong the covenants and the promises of God in the Old Testament. Surely, I mean, we would see it and we would think, surely having that lineage and that background and that knowledge would lead them to adore and to worship God at the works of Jesus. And yet it doesn't. Instead, the works of Jesus expose this hardened, self-righteous heart of the scribes and Pharisees who, who having been, you know, given so much as part of the people of God, they don't understand and they don't marvel and they don't rejoice. And I, I thought about this and I thought about how much we can heed this example in so many ways. In many ways, like the Pharisees. We have been given much that should lead to our awe and our admiration and our worship. I mean, think about it. Just, just the ability to speak and read and understand the English language alone. I mean, there, there's so many translations of the Bible. In our language, there's so many doctrinal and theological resources available to us to, to learn and grow in our knowledge of God and of the Scriptures that not everyone on earth has. And so then the question is, do we desire, do we crave, do we seek out, and do we consume these resources in order to glorify the God of Israel? There's so many opportunities we have to gather with other believers to worship and to learn and to, to grow. Not everyone has those. Again, do we seek to, to use those? Do, do we seek to take advantage of those? Do we seek to be together? Do we desire and long for time together to pray together, to fellowship together, to, to learn from the wisdom of one another, that we might rejoice in all of these things through the glory of the God of Israel. I think of our brothers and sisters in India that we've gone to work with and how they're doing so much more with so much less. Um, we've heard accounts of, of them, you know, that Many of them have the four Gospels and the book of Acts translated into their language. That's it. They don't have a complete Bible. Four Gospels, the book of Acts. And yet they walk for miles from village to village, sharing the Gospel, sharing their testimonies, planting churches to the glory of God. Like the Gentiles in this passage, they might not 
might not have all the resources, but they've seen the work of God among themselves and they've seen the work of God in their families and in their villages. And therefore they seek to glorify Him. So, as we come this morning, we've seen the biblical pattern of worship. We've seen this blatant contrast between these Gentiles and and the Pharisees. And the third truth that we see in these verses this morning is bountiful compassion. And we talked about this a little earlier, that God chose a people for Himself, beginning with Abraham through Isaac, his son Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, and from Israel, 12 sons that led to 12 tribes. And a nation of people that were to be his people, and he would be their God. Again, even here in Matthew 15, Jesus says to this Canaanite woman, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And further, in verse 26 of this chapter, Jesus says it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Which was a figurative way of saying it's, it's not right to take the works that I should do among the people of Israel and do them among the Gentiles. And yet, and yet in this chapter we see that when the Gentiles came to him, when they sought him out, when they brought their sick and they laid them at his feet, He did not turn them away. Instead, he healed them. And in verses 32 to 39, we see that he he healed them. And then in those verses, he fed them. In verse 32, Jesus said, I have compassion on the crowd. Because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I'm unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. And then we see in these verses, Jesus performs the same miracle with bread and fish among these 4,000 Gentile men with women and children that he had performed earlier in chapter 14 with the 5,000 Jewish men with their women and children. Um, some people, when they look at this, they'll, they'll try to conflate these two miracles together. They'll say that, that Matthew here is repeating the same story that he told earlier. Um, but that misses the whole point of this account. This is not one miracle being told twice. This is two different miracles all together. First of all, the details in this in these two accounts are very different. But also the purpose of the two is very different. In this feeding of the, the 4,000, um, John MacArthur puts it this way. He says, The monumental reality of this story is that Christ was saying that what he gave in provision for Israel is no less than he will also give in provision for those who are outside Israel. I mean, this is incredible that that Christ has healed these Gentiles, that he has compassion on them, that he fed them. And the incredible beauty here of what Christ did in these verses becomes even greater 
when we understand that all of these physical works of Jesus have a spiritual counterpart. Not only has Jesus opened the physical eyes of the Gentiles, but he's also given them spiritual eyes to see the truth of the gospel and to believe. We read about this in Acts 26, where Paul there, he's recounting his conversion experience on, uh, on the road there. And he quotes Jesus as, he, as he's giving this testimony of his conversion. And he says that Jesus said to him, I will deliver you from your people, meaning the Jewish people, and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. He gives these spiritual eyes to see. He not only gives physical hearing, but also spiritual ears to hear the truth of the gospel and to understand the grace and the mercy and compassion of God who has given to us Gentiles the ability to believe and to become a child of God. As the Jews, again, that Peter shared with in Acts 10, as they stated, To the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. And they glorified God. And so then we look at this and we ask, how has has Jesus done this? How has he accomplished this for, not only for the Jewish people, but for the the Gentiles as well? And and again, we looked at this a little bit earlier, but we're going to highlight some stuff here. Um, Paul tells us in Ephesians 2 that Jesus has done this by his own blood. His own blood. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both Jew and Gentile one, and is broken down in his flesh, in his body, the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Christ has reconciled us Gentiles who believe both to God and to one another through his death for us, and for our sins on the cross. And in this we rejoice, and like this crowd in Matthew 15, in this we glorify the God of Israel. Charles Simeon was an English pastor in the late, the, the late 17, early 1800s. And he put it this way. He said, if our eyes have been opened to behold the light of His truth. If our ears have been unstopped so that we can hear the voice of the Good Shepherd, if our tongues have been loosed to speak of His name, and if our feet have been strengthened to run the way of His commandments, it becomes us to imitate the multitudes who surrounded Him on this 
occasion in Matthew 15. There should not be a cold heart or an inactive member throughout this whole assembly. We should all either be filled with admiration of His goodness or with ecstatic ardor or or intensity or, or with passion. Render Him the tribute of incessant, of continuous, of of constant, of never-ending praise. Were we thus occupied, we should enjoy a very heaven upon earth. And our constant giving of thanks to Christ who has done this for us. So this morning we see this incredible thing that we we dirty, unclean Gentiles have been brought near through His blood because of His great mercy and compassion to the praise of His glorious grace. And so as we leave here today, may we be reminded of the truth, of the biblical pattern that we see of seeing the works of God that, that lead to wonder and amazement in our hearts and in our minds, which in turn leads to worship. Let us remember the warning that we saw as we contrasted the reaction of the Gentiles to the reaction of the Pharisees. And let us remember and ever give thanks for this bountiful compassion of Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this truth of your word. The the compassion of Jesus to to care for the people, to to heal them, to, to even to feed them. Lord, miraculously, and he does this work. Father, I pray that as we've seen this morning, as we've talked about, Lord, we would leave here meditating on, thinking about all of these great works you have done in our lives that we've heard about, the testimonies we've heard, and that, Father, they would all lead us to give thanks to you as God. So, Lord, we pray this. In Jesus' name, amen.